military individuals or people on the inside or people who really know what's going on, they understand that the Russians are no threat. They understand that the Chinese are really no threat, that they're, they're all controlled by the same black box mother corporations. The real fly in the ointment for them or the, the spanner and the gear is Vladimir Putin because Putin is public enemy number one to the new world order. He had some kind of come to Jesus moment where he's in his mind defending Christianity on earth. Edgar Casey made that prediction where Russia would become the, the hope of the world after the, the demise of communism. Yeah. So he made that prediction, I think, in the 1930s. During yes, the 30s, he said, we, he said we'd become great friends with Russia. And, and that, that kind of shows that, that Russia at this moment really is involved in, and I, I, I agree with you that Russia is involved in taking down the deep state. Uh, Putin said if the, you know, if, if, if the deep state had a throat, I would strangle it with my bare hands. When you have Nathaniel Rothschild coming out saying that Vladimir Putin is public enemy number one to the new world order. And the, the most, everybody talks about disclosure and the most remarkable disclosure comment ever made was when Trump went to, it was at a summit with Putin. And Putin says to Trump to his face, he says, by the time you're done being president of the United States, you must inform people of the truth of 9-11 and that there are 27 alien races that we're dealing with on this planet, three of which are actively trying to destroy us. This is the president of Russia. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. It's my great pleasure to introduce Sean David Morton to the show, to Exopolitics Today. Well, welcome, Sean. You have a really fascinating history, so I wanted to kind of go over some aspects of your history, which I think will be of great interest to my audience. Okay. Thank you. Um, and by the way, it I can't tell you, uh, Michael, what, a, what an honor it is to be here with you, because you really are, I mean, you're a legend. You're, you're you know, <laughs> you're Exopolitics, man. It's a uh, and you've had this show for a long time, and you're—I mean, I, I, I bow to you, sir. You're—you're you're well. Awesome. I, it's a feelings mutual. I—I I, I really respect how much you've done in this field, and just how much work you've done in trying to unravel the mysteries of the whole UFO exopolitics phenomenon. How, how much crap I've gotten for for doing it from the government? Yeah. Well, you know, when you're over the target, you you get you get a lot of uh, hostile fire. So that's what's happened. So, you know, with you, uh, you actually have um, a pedigree here, which is quite interesting. Your father was the public relations officer for one of these major firms, TRW, which was right. a, a really major corporation involved in the evolution of the secret space programs. And I did some work with uh, Bill Tompkins, who actually worked at TRW for four years as a systems engineer from 1967 to 71. And he said that the TRW was working on some really advanced secret space program technologies, free energies, uh, anti-gravity technologies, propulsion systems, and age regression technology. So- Wait, You forget also that they they came up with the current credit system uh, that we use, the, you know, where you put in your social security number and all that stuff, and they check your credit and your background and all that, you know, too. We have in, are, are you in the, the US, Michael? I'm now living in uh, East Tennessee. Oh, okay. Good for you. Well, hi, y'all. Um, <laughs> Howdy, y'all. Go out and shoot at some crude and, and bubbling crude and get rich. Uh, yeah, TRW was, uh, I mean, it, 
actually I knew the fate of TRW before it went down when it got bought by a uh, uh, by Northrop Grumman and or is it McDonald Douglas or North, no Northrop Grumman because when I was messing around with Area 51 we had heard that the uh, that the big contracts for things that were going to be built at 51 uh, did not go to TRW they they were going to go to Northrop and uh, so you know that kind of spelled the doom for TRW and now the entire complex is all uh, uh, you know is all uh, Northrop Grumman. And people also don't realize, too, that it was the center of, of, of multiple spy scandals. Uh, you had the Falcon and the Snowman, who stole stuff from TRW. You had uh, Rafi Atain, who was the Israeli master spy, who was actually working the Fal Falcon and the Snowman. Uh, but Atain, uh, Atain also was the, uh, uh, was the handler for Jonathan Pollard, who basically sold our entire uh, missile system and submarine delivery systems to, once again, the Israelis, who then put it up to the highest bidder, which means it went to the Chinese and the Russians and whatever else. So uh, it was the center of a, a lot of intrigue for years because of its advanced technology there. Matter of fact, right across the street from the main buildings in TRW, the, the tallest building in the South Bay, uh, which is known as E2, uh, right across the street where the missile hangers were is where uh, uh, became a, a, a movie studio, strange enough. And they shot things like Ally McBeal and Boston Public and all that. And then, of course, uh, uh, Marvel Studios took it over, so they shot Iron Man, they shot Captain America, uh, all in these big hangars that were basically used to build the uh, uh, build the Saturn V rockets and all that. So, so sort of interesting. I mean, when I was a kid, I got to go in there and put the bunny suit on and look at the lunar module and all that. And years later, uh, I was on the set of a show called Ally McBeal, and was trying to explain to Calista Flockhart that we built missiles there, and she just kind of looked at me with her usual blank, empty look. God, no wonder Harrison Ford eventually <laughs> actually divorced her. <laughs> Whatever. I'm sorry. Hey, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, so, so your father was uh, the public relations officer. So, was uh, he ever telling you anything about what they were doing at TRW, the, the kind of advanced technologies that, that were there? And I, and I know NASA, of course, was um, involved with the Apollo program using rockets, but there was stuff at TRW which was just so far ahead of the rocket propulsion system. So, did you know anything about that? No. It's, you know, I mean, he was a public relations director and, uh, the one that did know about it, I mean, we, for example, um, I mean, I grew up with all the astronauts. I grew up with uh, uh, Gus Grissom was like my dad. And uh, that started a whole interesting thing because uh, so we were friends with the, with the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo astronauts who would come over and swim in our pool and barbecue and hang out and all that. And um, they would come back from space because they had these little wind up uh, real thin Bell and Howell eight millimeter cameras that they would slip in the pocket of their, of their suits. And there was a big fight amongst the German scientists that did not want to put a window in the capsule. And all the astronauts fought for a window. But uh, um, we had to, every time they'd come back, we'd set a sheet up on the wall and we'd put the eight millimeter, you know, camera in. And they would show us UFOs that were, you know, would actually follow the Apollo programs around. Now, Gus was probably the most outspoken of them uh, who just said, you know, we're all just spam in a can. And this is, this is, quote, the real shit, unquote. That they've got out at five one, which back in the old days I think they called the they called it the Docktown Strip, and um, but there were parallel space programs going on where one was using uh, German technology and uh, um, various different types of propulsion, and Kennedy had an interesting uh, choice to make as to whether or not to go down this one road that was based on uh, most of the technology that we that we stole from the Germans, uh, stuff that we got from from crash crashed ships. Because we figured out with Roswell, we figured out how to shoot these 
excuse me, figured out how to shoot these things down, um, allowing them to fly into microwave grids. An interesting point about Roswell is, is that Roswell was, uh, uh, I mean, there were there were ships flying all over the place. I mean, they, they were like flies in the air. There were so many of them, and it was really pissing the military off. So what they did is that they 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 put up something called a uh, uh, an RX forty seven microwave grid, and they would blast whole areas of the desert with microwaves. And it just so happened that the microwaves, combined with a storm that happened that night in nineteen forty seven, uh, caught three ships in that grid. And what we hypothesized is, um, or I'm sorry, postulated or hypothesized, is that um, the the engines inside that ran on the, you know, your audience probably knows about 115 and all that stuff. But we figured out a way to interfere with the uh, the positron exchange because you, you'd have this little piece of element 115 that was kind of screwed into the top of this cone-shaped engine. And then there was a, a, a tube that came in and it bombarded the 115 with an extra proton. And it turned it into element 116, which is antimatter. And then they took the antimatter and they beamed the antimatter at a target gas at the base of this. And it generated enough uh, raw power to be able to create gravity as a wave. And of course, once you understand how to make gravity, like you do an X-ray or gamma ray or microwave or whatever else, I mean, the game is pretty much over after that. Because if all the science that we have, everything from Einstein to uh you know newton all the way up through uh um you know through tesla and whomever else it's all based on what gravity does what not what gravity is and once we figured out what gravity is and that it worked like a you know kind of a pulse and a wave and whatever once you have that then you unlock you're dealing with things where you don't have to worry about what they what they weigh or the mass so because now everything becomes weightless um so, but with gravity, unlocking gravity was the key. And so with the three, with the three ships, what happened is that the one ship exploded and as it exploded, it crashed into the second ship and the, and the one ship exploded over Mac Brazel's ranch where you got that famous debris field. The second ship fluttered down and it cr crashed outside of Corona living in this big ditch. There was a third ship that most people don't realize, but uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso, who wrote the book Day After Roswell, which is one of the best UFO books ever if you're not going to buy uh, you got to buy Santa time. You've got to buy uh, day after Roswell. And uh, there's one very obscure book that was, that was written by uh, Matilda McElroy. And I have personal experience that this was true, that uh, they captured, I can't really say an alien because it was more like an avatar. It's like a robot that was being controlled by a feminine consciousness. And uh, it, it claimed to be named um, Ariel. And it would only talk to this one lady who was the secretary of uh, General Twining. And it turns out I went to USC with General Twining's grandson, uh, Jamie. And so we would go over and, you know, he says, hey, the general's going to have a dinner. And we'd go over to the house and he would tell us kids, he'd get a few drinks and tell us all about this stuff. And there's a, another book, which is called The uh, it's called the Alien Interview by uh, uh, by Matilda and McElroy. And uh, it's, it's fantastic. It's really interesting. It, it lays out the entire... Uh, history of earth and this this section of the universe going back billions of years so but the third so one you, so you personally can confirm that uh general nathan twining's son and you were told by the general by the retired general that uh that that grandson. actually alien interview story was was real that the that there was this nurse that actually did have these telepathic exchanges with one of the captured ebes and uh, then recorded it in some notes and it was eventually published yeah 
and and the general complained about the fact that uh you know there's only this one crazy woman that, that uh, she would talk to <laughs> interesting because i know in that book they talk about the dominion that they yeah. talk about this this group called the dominion and in your series the sands of time the the dominion is actually an evil entity so you want to kind of was that deceived for your later conclusion about the dominion being this evil entity well it's you know it's sort of like well there's the dominion versus the old republic i remember were the two uh between them so that that term came up uh you know quite a bit and uh i can't remember if the dominion were the good guys i'm pretty sure they were the bad guys and uh they were versus versus the old republic that was trying to bring I don't know, peace and freedom to the galaxy or whatever. It just it makes you realize that the that the galactic life in this area is just is so much more uh complex than most people most people realize. And uh eventually, you know, towards the end of the book, these guys, you know, grab the the EBE or um, you know, um uh, Ariel as it called itself, she called herself, and did something with it, but that the the intelligence that was controlling it appeared to Matilda later on to say i'm fine everything's okay i'm actually sitting very comfortably in a spaceship in the asteroid belt and i've been controlling and it's just a it's just a robot it's just a doll uh that i was controlling so i'm fine so just don't don't weep don't cry but it's a fascinating document and and as i said uh general twining mentioned her a, couple, a few times saying that uh, she was the only one that this uh this being would talk to which i thought was funny so um um so there's that so Anyway, those are the three good books about it. And the, the last part that most people don't realize is that Corso did some interviews in Italy later on towards the end of his life. And he talked about the uh, that there was a third ship and the third ship hit a panic button. And somehow through some uh, quirk in time and space, it actually crashed in the same location uh, some 10 years later. So, And Corso was actually on the spot where it crashed and uh, um, spoke to the being. Actually, they used this... Uh, he used this headband that he he could put on and he could then telepathically communicate with the being and uh he let him he let it go he just said okay well you know all's well that ends well you you go back to where you are so he'd made some kind of peace with these beings towards the end but anyway that goes back to roswell then it goes up to um um you know and uncle fred bell dr fred bell who graduated with the uh from the university of michigan when he was 14 and was even then at at U of M was actually studying time. The, the whole focus of what the military's been after with all this extra, extraterrestrial tech and the things that they have at 5-1 and everything else is all about time. It's all about studying time because they saw time and the ability to move fluidly through it as being the, uh, um, you know, the, the real prize to all of this stuff. And um, even the ships that we had at 5-1, the, the ships at 5-1 got shipped in, there were nine, and uh, on the orders of Dr. Ted Humphrey, who's the main character. So here you go. There you go. There's my book, um, Sands of Time. So Dr. Ted Humphrey was really running the whole thing. And um, uh, their goal was, once again, to take these ships and figure out not so much the power system, which they weren't really concerned with, but the fact that the ships had the ability to dilate time or actually move through time. So, and that's what it was all about, these nine craft. They were moved in in 87. Uh, actually, it's interesting because then you have Bob Lazar who comes in and people don't realize that Lazar really was only at the base doing work on the stuff that he was doing for 16 days. I think he just moved back and forth. They would call him up. He'd be there for a day or two and, and then go back to Las Vegas. And uh, 
supposedly he didn't know this, but it, it's hard to parse it out because, you know, Lazar finally wrote a book called Dreamland. And um, it's completely different. I mean, there's all kinds of different stuff from when my, my crew, uh, I was uh, co-directing and co-producing a documentary called UFO Contactees. And Joe Randazzo, who's the executive producer and the host of the show, he had a pretty substantial budget. I mean, we had a budget of about $250,000, which in 1980s, 1990s money is a big thing. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. And, uh, but he told, us, he told us completely different stories than you see in the book. So that was a problem for me because I read the book with, a, with, a, with an idea to make it to a movie. And yet everything in the book was not the information that we had originally. So Lazar was brought in and I was simply told this by the person that gave me these manuscripts to turn into books. Um, he said Lazar was only pulled in as a, as a low level uh, scientist, as a, you know, kind of a grunt plebe. He had no advanced education, you know, no advanced PhD or anything like that. And they just wanted to see if they could just pick kind of a scientist off the street, physicist off the street and um, see if he could back engineer the device so just in case the device and he was only he was only set loose on what they call an arv which is an alien reproduction vehicle and the arvs uh, were mostly stuff that was engineered by t townsend brown who was a scientist that had come up with a way to float these things around and when they figured out because as i said bar uh, lazar had a uh, a q16 clearance which is still pretty high i mean the president of the united states only gets a q8 clearance and even the commandant of nellis when he was asked by Harry Reid, well, why do you need all this extra land and what's going on there? And the general said, I don't know. He says, my clearance isn't high enough to even go there. So I have no idea. Might as well be the dark side of the moon as far as I'm concerned. And uh, of course, there was also the legend moving around that the uh, uh, the reason they called the project Dark Side of the Moon is that uh, Steven Spielberg had actually been given the footage of the landing of a mothership or a ship or what have you at the at the 5-1 facility which was going to be used in a movie and had been shown to Richard Nixon. And then at the very last minute, they, they pulled it and decided not to, not to um, use it. Okay. Well, I just want to back up a little bit to the retrieved craft and the effort to understand the, the time dilation, the time travel kind of aspects of them. And, and you mentioned Fred Bell as, as someone that was very close to you. And, and I think he was, someone that was working with NASA, one of the contractors, I think it was Rocketdyne or yeah, Rocketdyne, yeah. Rocketdyne. So he was one of the people that worked out that what NASA was doing was just a PR exercise and that the, the real technology was was actually uh, being developed in the secret program. So so exactly, what, what was so, so exactly. how did Fred Bell kind of get involved in your life or how did you get to understand what he was doing? stupid this always happens i knew this was gonna happen sorry okay let me turn this thing off um okay um again as i said fred he graduated university of michigan when he was 14 so he was the he was the youngest um what they call checkout engineers and a checkout engineer is a person who goes through uh all of the uh um hang on, let me turn this off You're dealing with the Apollo, which single-handedly was the most complicated machine um, ever, ever built by man. And so Fred, at 23 years old, was the only person that understood all the systems and whatever. And what finally happened is he resigned. He quit because he wrote a whole paper 
saying that this thing's going to blow up. This thing is terrible. This thing is, is, is slapdash together by monkeys. And um, he tried to warn everybody that he could get his hands on. Uh, once again, you know, Gus Grissom was also one of the most, most vociferous uh, supporters of Fred. And Fred wound up, wound up quitting the program in disgust, saying, you know, this, this ship, this is Apollo 1 he was talking about, uh, is going to blow up. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's basic design flaws. And of course, what they were saying is that, well, what do you want us to do? You want us to start over? And he goes, yeah, you're going to have a bunch of dead astronauts. And um, they went ahead anyway because they found that the uh, uh, the flaws are just too fundamental in the uh, in, in the whole design. And it was actually uh, Betty Grissom, who was uh, Gus's wife, uh, divorced, estranged, but uh, she she wasn't going to get a dime from NASA. They were just like, well, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it. And uh, Chaffee and White, who were, you know, his friends and on the whole thing. And as a matter of fact, it was, uh, it was Gus Grissom and Don Isley. And uh, Don was also a, a great friend. <laughs> and I can actually claim responsibility for uh, saving Don's life. Because when I was a kid, um, he, would he was coming over to swim in the pool. And he had this trick where he'd put me up on his shoulders and we'd jump off the diving board. It was great. Well, our diving board was terrible. And we had this grass mat on it that got all, when it got wet, it got slippery. And uh, Don put me up on his shoulders and I was a pretty hefty kid. And he came down, he slipped on the board and I came down on his shoulder and I dislocated his shoulder. And so, you know, to this day, he's got like a slip disc in his shoulder. And I remember, you know, him screaming when my dad popped it back in and, uh, but he couldn't go on the mission after that. So basically they replaced him with, uh, 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 with Ed White, who was the first man to walk in space and uh, um, saved his life. He went on, he went on, Concert, uh, uh, missions after that but uh, he was scrubbed from apollo one and of course he uh what happened with apollo one is that a very small wrench supposedly slipped out of somebody's pocket and got into some circuitry and it sparked it and for whatever and it was just it was a ground test i mean but they fill i don't know why they do this they're they explode the capsule or, or when the rocket goes off the whole thing is is they pump in high pressure concentrated 100 percent oxygen uh, no idea as to why and of course, that's what uh, uh, that's what happened. And um, so there you go. It's a sad thing to remember. Okay, so with but, Fred, um, I've known him since I was knew him since I was five. He was involved in the National Health Federation. Uh, my mother was the president of the National Health Federation, Health Federation for like forty-seven years. And um, when I was in college, this this is very Back to the Future. When I was in college, I would drive down from USC and go to his house in uh, in Laguna uh on santa Ana, and we built a time machine in his backyard this thing was four stories high and it was it was two pyramids it was a pyramid like this and a pyramid like that so it was a dodecahedron kind of with a, a ramp or a um you know causeway if you will around the outside and we would hook this thing into the uh into the cities we blacked out the city of laguna beach i think twice and um but i mean i personally threw the switch on this thing twice and watched this entire four-story structure vanish i mean it vanished was interesting because the first time it vanished it vanished from the outside inwards with kind of a pop or an explosion and when it came back a few minutes later it, it started from the inside and came back out which uh actually describes the real trouble with uh either tra either traveling or teleporting through time space uh which is a kind of a lengthy proposition but what happens is that it is that it uh it pulls you when you go out it, it takes you from the outside in and then it puts you back together from the inside out so some kind of shielding had to be come up with uh um, in order for them to do this then they um 
And then the government got into that business in the early 60s. They were teleporting um, satellites, actually. And they were teleporting these satellites into the interior of Russian nuclear tests. And they were trying to study the time dilation at the center of a uh, an atomic blast. And sort of what they found was that the uh, uh, not only did the time dilation happen, but it was it was ripping holes in the fabric of the space time continuum. And the challenge of this is, and this was one of the supposed warnings that the um, these beings they called the Ethereans because they were tall, white. They had a device on their on their belt that can make them appear and disappear. And these are the ones that demanded to meet with Eisenhower in uh, it was February of 1953. And uh, they were pissed off because one, we were testing atomic weapons, ripping holes in the fence that supposedly protects the earth. And two, we had used German technology in the National Security Agency had actually landed on the moon uh, in January, just a few weeks before in January of uh, 1953. And they basically said, no, it's off limits. You, you don't get to you as human beings are considered a disease by the rest of the universe. Even your language is considered a virus and you don't get to go anywhere. And um, I'm not sure if they extended that because I know we did land on the moon because I knew the guys that went. Um, but uh, yeah, they said, you don't get to go anywhere off this planet. The rest of the, the rest of the solar system is inhabited and uh, you don't get to go there because, because you're a warlike species. Now they warned Eisenhower about two things. They said, first off, you got to stop testing nuclear weapons. You don't know what you're doing. And uh, uh, Eisenhower figured, well, if these beings are afraid of nuclear weapons, then we should we should be testing nuclear weapons. <laughs> the problem with that is, is that the reason they were doing it is because one, uh, these hydrogen and cobalt and, and nuclear bombs were, were, were actually affecting the orbit of the earth and had, and had not only knocked the, uh, knocked the earth out of its orbit properly, but the, the electromagnetic north of Earth, which was discovered in 1832, um, became un, un, unhinged, untethered. And so uh, True North, which is sort of the direct nodal axis of the planet, um, and then you had actually Magnetic North, which was somewhere in Canada, Boothby Bay, I think it is, but it became untethered from the center of the Earth, and then Magnetic North began to move towards True North. Well, this is, there's all kinds of stuff by the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, all kinds of stuff by, once again, TRW, NASA, all this, that if magnetic north and true north met that the planet would possibly one the electromagnetic poles of the planet would shift which would black out everything that's connected to a ground wire which is everything because the earth vibrates at 7.83 hertz which is the schumann resonance and uh you know, let's call it eight hertz or whatever and everything that we use today which is because of edison and even though tesla came up with the whole thing that was not only in tune with the electromagnetic energies, energies of the earth. But if he transmitted his, his electromagnetic field, which was in tune with the earth, uh, you could quadruple the human lifespan. You were looking at human beings living about 400 years or so with totally clean energy, with energy that was free. And of course, everybody knows the famous, uh, the famous conversation that took place with JP Morgan, who's laying in his bed, smoking a cigar. And Tesla's talking about how, you know, you have free power and flying cars and planes and trains and automobiles. And, Morgan took a cigar out of his mouth and said, so you're telling me any idiot can go set up in a tenant's yard and get free energy? And Tesla says, yes, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Morgan's like, well, where's the money in that? How am I supposed to profit? And he's like, get out of here. He said, Put, get Edison in here. And Edison came in, and of course, famously, he said, well, look, we can, we can steal Tesla's technology and use it to transmit high-frequency energy uh, all over the world. 
And then we'll use my technology to put it into step-down transformers to get it to 60 cycles. And the only reason it was 60 cycles was because then you can charge by the minute for electricity. And so that's where we got our modern system. But if the fields of the planets and the, the, other, the other possibility is that you have the entire planet flip over with the North Pole being somewhere around Saudi Arabia. Um, and by the way, this was happening. This was, this, was, this was inevitable until 2009. And something weird happened in 2009 the same time that Obama took his 83 homies, his posse, if you will, and uh, they all went to Norway to get his ridiculous Nobel Peace Prize. And of course, even Obama said, I get it. I'm black. I'm cool. Uh, but I haven't done anything yet. I, you know, I just got in as president. And, um, um, but what they watched is they watched something called the Norway spiral. And you can go, anybody can go on YouTube and look it up. But this was basically a black hole that was generated for nine minutes between here and the sun. And this is all the super technology, by the way, that, that in, my, in my books, Ted Humphrey works for an organization called The Group. And The Group is kind of outside the political spectrum. They don't really serve anybody. There is a group above them called The Council. And there is a council that most people would know of as the Illuminati or what have you. By the way, here's a little trick for you. If you take the word Illuminati and type it into your computer backwards, um, see what you get. It'll surprise you. So it's, uh, it's pretty funny. And... Uh, Anyway, so the, um, the whole point of all of this was that uh, uh, they generated using a, um, um, something called IceCat, which is the, um, uh, uh, the, electro, the electromagnetic, it's the scattered radiation array. It's the European Science uh, Council's uh, version of, uh, of HARP. And so supposedly they used IceCat, which is in, which is in uh, Svalbard, Norway, and they generated this, this nine-minute black hole which pulled energy off the sun to make sure the sun behaves and we weren't going to get, you know, smooshed by a electromagnetic wave. Uh, but the other point of it was too, is that it altered the, and you can look this up. It was December 9th of 2009 when the magnetic North of the planet suddenly stopped and it suddenly took a hard right turn. Like it was listening to too much Fox news or something. And it started heading towards Russia. So right now the electromagnetic pole is somewhere in the Siberian Sea on its way towards uh, on its way towards Russia, and this is a, a temporary fix, but it, uh, it 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 altered the not the nodal axis of the planet, but the electromagnetic axis axis of the planet. So this is one of the things that I've been arguing for years that there is a super technology using organization that has engineered a series of things that we would think of as natural catastrophes, but in fact were necessary uh, to stop massive major catastrophes from. Uh, from happening. And that's why I've been, uh, well, having studied prophecy and making a lot of predictions on my own, the, uh, the entire timeline, as you and I know, it basically shifted uh, directly after the, um, after the, the, the Phuket tsunami in 2005, which was predicted by the Great Pyramid. And mm -hmm. um, since then, everything's off. I mean, the Nostradamus stuff, the Edgar Casey stuff, the pyramid stuff, all these prophecies and predictions are completely altered. So a lot of you out there may be experiencing what we call the Mandela effect. And the Mandela effect happens because your brains aren't really wired like other humans. And um, there's, a, there's a greater connection between the left and the right-hand sides of the brain that remembers the past timeline uh, and may have some problems getting through this. But, it, but it's very uncomfortable because it means you're sharing a reality with uh, particularly other people that the vast majority of people on the planet do not share. But now it's kind of the wild blue yonder. It has to do with now we're moving into the fifth dimension. From, well, from 2012 to 2025, you know, like, we're going through the night of the Jaguar, which is now kind of, sorry. 
Yeah, I just wanted to kind of like, um, you know, back up to this uh, time machine that you said Fred Bell built um, in his backyard and that, that you saw and that you operated because, uh, I mean, that's quite remarkable that, you know, you have this timeline where in the 1960s, um, these the, the US government or this uh, shadowy group is starting to focus on developing time travel technology. Right. And then you have uh, Fred Bell as a, I, I guess at when you got to see it, Fred Bell already had his contacts with the Pleiadians, and and maybe this is where he got the idea of how to build the time machine. So, so yeah, and, and I guess he kind of used just off the shelf material for building his time machine, which is again re remarkable. So, so this means that something like a time machine can actually be built using off the shelf material by private individuals. So, so yeah, just explain how how he came up with this time travel technology. Protected. Sorry. Yeah, how did he come up with this time travel technology and, and just build it himself in the 1970s? Yeah, he um well he claimed, by the way, this started this big feud between between him and Billy Meyer, because Billy Meyer, you know, but Billy's kind of got off his rocker, but it's uh uh Billy Meyer claimed that he was the only UFO contactee on earth, that everybody else was fake, that nobody's had a real encounter with UFOs or whatever else, even though in the contact notes, which I read like all five volumes and thousands of pages because i was working on a, a, a screenplay about the about the meyer case which if anybody wants to produce it's still around but um uh even in the in the contact notes simianzi talked about having other other contacts other people that she was in contact not just uh you know not just billy meyer so um you know and, and push really came to shove because when i was working for the show unsolved mysteries um we were going to do a whole hour on the billy meyer case and we had we had bought the footage uh, we were working on a contract where we were going to do an interview with Billy and uh, we we're going to pay him $25,000. And he said, well, uh, you know, if you don't talk about the past, then we're, I'm like, fine, I don't care what you talk about. You can you can pass gas for an hour if you want, for all I care. And, um, you know, we just need the interview with you. And um, I went through all this thing. I went through Guido Musburger and I bought the rights to Guido's book. He had a book called uh, which stands for And Yet They Fly or Needs And Yet They Fly. I was good friends with his son, Methuselah. Every time Methuselah came to California, we'd go to Disneyland. And I mean, I bought Methuselah a black cowboy hat. I don't think he's ever taken off his head since then. Um, but, uh, you know, I got in tight with all these people. I, you know, I was at Billy's farm for about a week and and uh, just hanging out with him and kind of, you know, soaking in his whole ambiance. And then he wrote a letter to my producers, to John Cosgrove and Terry Muir, um, that I, I won't do this if Sean Morton's involved because I don't like Fred Bell. And, you know, John Cosgrove took me in and said, so you're telling me that Billy's going to back on this whole deal because he doesn't like somebody you know? And I'm like, well, it looks that way. And he, and he had this question every time I brought in a UFO person and the UFO person acted like a complete dick. Um, John would ask, he said, so are they assholes before the UFO gets a hold of them? Or is there some machine where they go on the UFO and it turns them into an asshole? And then they return to Earth to spread their ashholishness throughout the throughout the cosmos because that's what it seemed like. And um, so their attitude was, no, if he's not going to work with you, then then you know screw him. And uh, it turned my partner Bob Keviat loose, uh, and he did a whole thing called the uh, UFOs, world's greatest hoaxes, and he just turned the dogs loose on Meyer. He just everybody that hated his guts, uh, you know, came on and said, oh, he's a liar, he's a fake, which he wasn't. I mean, he's had the contacts, but um, and. It's interesting because what Fred did is he supposedly had all these ideas from the Palladians, 
including, by the way, interesting enough, this, I mean, this medallion is one of the things that, uh, that Fred developed. And he said that this was the evolution of his contacts with, uh, with different beings called the Andromedans. And he moved on from the Palladians to the Andromedans and eventually the Octurians, who are now supposedly the, uh, the guardians of earth. But this is a, it's interesting because it's a medallion that creates a standing uh, DNA helix. And what it does is that it, the point of all magic is to think something and then um, project that thought into the world. And that thought then encounters what we call demonic counterintention in, in Buddhism. And uh, so you, you always have resistance to whatever it is you want to accomplish. And this is supposedly a, a magical device that then creates a DNA wave that takes your thoughts and pushes them through the universe to um, uh, lessen, I guess what you'd say, resistance to your thoughts. So this is, this is the last big thing that he invented before he, before he passed away. Okay, so talk about the time machine. So the time machine was fascinating because the first time we, I mean, we, you know, I'd go down on weekends and build this thing. And um, uh, finally, when it came to it, I, I, I used to work in a lumber camp up in Forks, Washington. And uh, so I climbed shimmied up this pole with all my, you know, my clampon, crampons and the whole thing and connected it into the power grid of the city. And um, <laughs> it's weird because then we had a whole circuit board and the whole thing. I mean, it was right out of Back to the Future. And, you know, so I pulled this thing down and there's like, and all the lights in the city went down. And the whole device just went, it started pixelating at the edges. And then it just went with, a, with this boom, this big explosion as the, as the air just disappeared out of it. And it was gone for about five minutes or so. And then suddenly it, there's a, there's like a pixelation at the center and then it comes from the inside outwards and goes and it pushes all the air out and i of course i run up and i open the door on the you know it had this uh, uh this capsule that he was sitting in and he's messed up i mean he's got blood coming out of his ears his nose his eyes uh and fred was a big guy I mean, he was like about six four so it was all for me to do to drag him out and you know drag it was even with the patio i would drag him in the patio so I took him into his bedroom and the bedroom had a, had a, a pyramid over it. And on the top of the pyramid, it was like a capstone. There's all kinds of stones. And, you know, he wanted me to turn all the lights on and because we had lasers and the lasers were pointing at these gigantic crystals and the uh, laser light is like the light of the astral plane. And so by bouncing off crystals, you get all kinds of energy on it. So finally, when he was conscious enough, I mean, this is, this is what was weird about it, Michael, is that, uh, you know, he gestures me over and I lean in on the bed and he, grabs me by the shirt and he yanks me down to his ear and he goes the future it, it's not there it's not there and he just he passes out so i kept wanting to take him to the hospital and, and uh uh he just kept saying no so he finally kind of reorganized and what happens is uh, brief explanation of this the the human form has seven chakras and each one of these seven chakras relates directly to a different different endocrine gland in the body and so these endocrine glands they have a they have a frequency they have a sound they have a color and but what people don't realize is that you don't just have seven chakras is that each one of your chakras has seven chakras and so your body being the intricate uh spiritual device in, in our bodies are very much like spacesuits that are designed to uh hold our souls which are infinite and travel all through time and space all at once, but they trap us in these these spacesuits, which I guess were designed to mine gold or something on Earth. 
And the challenge is, is that, so your energy field starts way out here at the edge of it. So you don't just have seven chakras, you have seven times seven, which is 49. So the challenge being is, is that it grabs on to the outermost area. So when you transport, you start with what we call the causal field. It's out here where God lives. And then it goes, I mean, think, let me see if I can get it right. It's, it goes to the causal field, to the uh, etheric field, to the astral field, to the spiritual field, to the um, uh, mental field, and then, you know, the, and then it goes all the way down into the physical body. So, but it grabs these seven chakras first. And so it takes you where you want to go, but it takes you inside out. And then when you come back, once again, it starts. It starts at the causal. Sorry, throat cancer is a bitch. Um, so it, it puts you back inside out. So here was the interesting thing. Why Fred said that the future wasn't there is because, and I know this is a weird concept, but it's like time and space and all creation. We think of it as being from a, uh, a finite starting point. You know, what science laughingly calls the Big Bang. Well, the Big Bang can't be possible because, you know, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Uh, and yet the universe, <laughs> the universe is 92 billion light years across or even just the galaxy. So if light can only travel at a certain speed and yet the universe is older than, than the process of how light can travel, then we've got to have another theory because it just, because the Big Bang just doesn't work on any kind of physics level. Um, a theory that's better is that the universe kind of just faded in from another space. And uh, anyway, so when you jump into the future and you're vibrating, so you're vibrating the frequency of right now. So if I wanted to travel in time, I would have to then vibrate at the frequency backwards of the moment that you and I connected over this, you know, this weird, wild zoom, zoomy thing. And we could then move backwards in time, but you have to meet the exact flow and vibration of that moment. So it's very much like you have to, you're floating, you know, down a stream, dreamily, merrily, merrily, life is but a dream. And then you've got to jump, you've got to jump out of the time stream. And then you've got to go into another dimension, literally, which is the shore, where the laws of physics are different on the shore than they are in the water. And then you've got to run up the shore. And then you've got to jump back into the river. And you have to match the flow, the vibration, if you will, of the river to float down the stream. Otherwise, if you jump into the river and you stop and you become a static point in space, all kinds of hell breaks loose. You know, time and space builds up around you. So in jumping to a future point, you've got to be able to vibrate at the time and vibrational energy of that point in the future. You've got to be able to jump into the, the time stream, if you will, and then, and then flow with the time stream. Well, Fred didn't do that. Fred was actually jumping at the, at the point of now into a point of then. And so when he saw it, he said the whole thing looked like a blueprint. It looked like a, a construct. It looked like when you're when the, the engine goes out in your video game and suddenly you see everything as a, he said it was like being inside a transparent blueprint and that time is literally being created at the moment that we interact with it in the future because it starts in the causal plane and it moves back down the etheric and the astral and, the, and, the, and all that stuff. And the, the challenges too is that when you move into the, into the astral plane particularly, there's really bad stuff that lives in there. I mean, this is where you get, you know, ectoplasm and you get all kinds of monsters and creatures because it's a plane you're stuck in. So it's like where you get demonic ghosts and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was the challenge. And as I, as I learned through contactees that 
were in contact with uh, you know Pleiadians, Andromedans, Arcturians, whatever, um, they fully agree with that whole vib vibrational concept. Because in order to travel through through space, the ship itself has to actually meet the vibrational frequency to be able to pick a point in time. Now, that's also, you have to understand that the, uh, that's one analogy. The other analogy would be if you have a wave that's coming towards the shore, you have some great grand event like an earthquake or something world shattering, what have you. You have to be able to create the opposite wave to match that wave coming in. If you want to stop it, you've got to create the wave from where your standpoint is and then send it towards the wave that's coming toward you. So, um, you know, so it's all about consciousness. If you change consciousness or shift consciousness, I actually asked uh, Ted Humphrey, uh, you know, it's again, Santa Time books. So there it is. Um, I said, why don't you guys just go back and kill Hitler? Wouldn't that make things a lot easier? And his response really surprised me because he said, we did three times. And each time the Germans win the war, he said, the only thing that stopped the Germans from winning the war is that Hitler was crazy. And he says, the first time he says, Hans Kammler takes over and he wins the war. The second time it's Rudolf Hess that takes over. He says, the third time nobody took over and they just left it to the German high command. And um, um, they still win the war. So, and I thought that was weird until, let me see. I wish I could have this word. Uh, somebody found a coin in Mexico, of all places. And it was a, it was a German coin. It was, uh, it had the, the eagle with the claws with the, uh, uh, there was, there's a name for it, but the swastika and the circle. And um, Mexico was never really involved in World War II and uh, had nothing really to do with the Germans, but it actually said on the coin, this German Nazi coin of the Alliance of North America, uh, it actually had the year 2039 AD actually imprinted on the coin. It's, you can look it up on the internet. It's pretty famous. And I just thought that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a Mandela effect. Um fallout of you know these these time wars these time shifts but how did that how did that work i mean if, if they went back and, and they killed hitler uh three times and each time germany won the war and the timeline was changed significantly i mean how did they restore the timeline i mean how how did that work well they were just they were able to go back i guess to when you know it's a quite that's a question that's above my pay grade i don't really know i mean i have you know, enough, uh, enough ideas from this and, um, you know, of how it might happen, but somehow they were able to isolate themselves from that time wave to be able to go back and, and shift this particular event. Now we are in an altered timeline now and the altered timeline that we have now is, uh, um, I mean, I could tell you one interesting story because this is from a, a contactee group that I was involved with where we did change a timeline where this, these, uh, beings had asked us to uh, find books by a certain spiritual master by the name of Rajneesh Gurdjieff. And we had, I've never heard of him, never knew who he was, but we went out and we did it. So a group of us actually went everywhere we, everywhere we went, we were looking for Gurdjieff books. So we came back to the meeting the next month. And that day I just stopped by some bookstores, you know, where I'd put in some requests for books by Gurdjieff. And this one girl, Julie, who I knew, and had taken out the coffee and was kind of schmoozing on. And I said, hey, Julie, how are you? And she's like, hello. And I said, do you ever get any Gurdjieff books in? I'm going to this meeting. And she just points at a cabinet. She goes, I'm right there. I said, oh, you got them in? She said, no, those have been here for 15 years. And I was like, wait, I had a card that I filled out. And it was like, she went back and looked at the card deck. Nope. I said, do you know me? She goes, I've never seen you before in my life. And then I just completely spazzed out and uh, I got a bunch of the books. 
everywhere I went, the same thing. Oh yeah, we got Gurdjieff, yeah, everybody knows him. And uh, we went to this meeting and we were told, it was interesting the way it worked because we had a, what was called a shell group of 12 people where you had uh, male, female, male, female. So you have plus, minus, plus, minus. And one person would pop, as we would say, and uh, start channeling this guy named Commander Fage, who would say, I'm not a ghost. I'm not an entity. I'm just tuned into your brain frequency to transmit to you directly. And they said, because you did what we asked you to do and because you dedicated yourself, we were given permission to go back in time and make sure one American journalist uh, caught a train that he previously missed. And he went and saw Gurdjieff speak, got to know him, brought him to the United States, got him a publishing deal. And so very subtly, the spirit of the 20th century was changed by the wisdom of this man. So, you know, who then developed, I think he was involved with uh, Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society and Manly P. Hall and all those people. And um, I asked the question, well, have there been any other major time shifts? And I'll just make this a short story, but it's, uh, they said, yes. And uh, the earth had become a, a, a prison that uh, your earth had become basically just a complete prison world. And the Russians, the Chinese, the Germans, uh, and the British, these great empires continued to eat everything up. And so there's no freedom on the earth. There was no freedom of religion, no freedom of speech, no freedom of spirit. And so they said we were given permission to change one major event in history. And I would rack in my brain thinking, what is it that could, what's the one thing that could change that would alter all of our reality? And they said that it was the Battle of the Spanish Armada that they went back to, I believe, the year 1588, 1588. And uh, uh, they changed one thing. They allowed a, they, they created a win uh, behind a, um, uh, an English frigate that allowed it to T-bar on a man of war, which is this giant, like three-story high thing with guns and whatever, uh, and allowed them to sink it. And they just that one puff of wind allowed them, and they, they created some kind of storm, uh, which allowed the British to defeat the Spanish Armada, which would be like the U.S. Navy losing to the Mexicans in the Gulf of Mexico. And that one event, that one ship sinking, changed the course of history to the point of where now the English and Protestantism was allowed to colonize uh, the New World, defeat the Spanish, colonize you know Canada, Australia, uh, eventually led to you know India becoming part of the empire. But because of the expansion of the of the uh, of the British Empire, it brought freedom of religion, freedom of thought, freedom of uh, freedom of speech to the world, and has led to the world that we have today. They also said that should the United States fail in its mission to, I don't know, free the earth, and it looks like we're failing, uh, they, said that, uh, they said that they would start over in Brazil. And the Brazilians are so into this, they built, they built Brasilia uh, 1,600 miles from the coast uh, because they so believe that you know, there's going to be these vast earth changes and, and spirituality and spiritual healing and all that are, are kind of the biggest things in Brazil. So you know, these, are, these are all the time the timeline shifts and i can tell you from studying nostradamus and negra casey and all these great prophets and all these people the only one that continues to be right which is unusual was uh, madame blavatsky now blavatsky predicted that there would be something in the early first quarter of the 21st century that there would be a sign in the sky which she called the, the death star and this death star would appear in the sky uh on the wing of the swan which is what she said so that's the constellation of uh uh it's the it's the constellation of the swan. It's one of the uh, Cygnus. I'm sorry, I'm Cygnus. My brain's a little racked. Uh, now, June 1st, NASA told us that there was going to be this double boom 
supernova where two of these supernovas actually crashed together and that we were going to see this new star on the wing of Cygnus um, on June 1st. Didn't happen. NASA predicted it and they said, well, it's not rocket science or something, but uh, it could still be on its way. But she said that when this star appears, it would be the beginning of a great culling of men and animals. That was her exact word. And when you look at the culling of animals, it's going on looking at the culling of men. I think they, I think the dark forces failed with COVID, but certainly you've seen entire flocks of entire herds of sheep uh, die in Ireland. We've had 10,000 cattle just fall over dead because they were poisoned here. We've had our, our, our food processing supplies, uh, food processing plants. There's been anywhere between 40 and I've heard different, uh, different numbers, 40 and 87 or so, but somebody's actively sabotaging and destroying food processing. And wouldn't you know that Bill Gates has gone from Dr. Bill Gates, where he's poisoned and killed hundreds of thousands of people with his vaccines, to the point of where his clinics are being burned down and his doctors being taken out and, and butchered by the people that they've been giving these vaccines to. So now he's Farmer Gates. And he actually had to testify in front of Congress as to why are you buying up all this farm, farmland? The two biggest private owners of farmland in the United States are Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And every time Bill Gates gets into something, I mean, he really is Dr. Evil, the son of a bitch. Every time he gets involved in anything, there's massive catastrophes in that field. I mean, we could say computers. I mean, because of Bill Gates' involvement in, in computer technology and because of the piece of crap that they call DOS, uh, we're light years behind where we should be in computers had it been left to somebody like Steve Jobs, who was really innovative. So here we go. Here come and here come the food shortages. Now they're telling you that, you know, it's perfectly, it's perfectly okay to eat bugs. And now they're saying, you know, cannibalism is okay. It's sort of like Hannibal Lecter saying, uh, don't worry, if we run out of food, we'll always have each other. And, okay, you know, okay, well, you know, we're, we're clearly on a kind of like what seems to be a negative timeline. Um, so in your in your book, Sands of Time, I mean, there's this character, Ted Humphrey, right. that you've put a lot of attention on in terms of like, um, He's like he's playing this heroic role and, and he's fighting all these evil forces. So, you know, where did that character emerge from? I mean, is he a real life character? Is he someone that you you base the book on in terms of your experience? No, he's a real guy. As a matter of fact, I I those these okay, these books here's here's a book too. Actually, I promised I'd bring them up here. There's book two. Sands Time comes up backwards on there. And then this one's interesting because it's an actual photo of uh, of one of the Viper craft. Uh, its name is Hazel, actually, but one of the, one of the Viper craft actually over at the uh, the S two facility, which is over at Papoose Lake. So it was taken from the uh, from the rafters, and you can also see on on each one of the books. I actually have a uh, uh, there's a mathematical equation. I don't know if you can see it that way because it comes out backwards, but this mathematical equation is the unified field theory. This is the last thing that Einstein was working on. He actually had it scribbled on his on a, on a notepad paper on his desk when. Uh, when he when he died he actually had he came out of a dream state he used to have this um he used to have this little bell and he would actually just have this little bell in his hand and he would go into kind of a meditative state where he's just about to go to sleep and when he went to sleep that he he dropped the bell and when the bell dropped it would wake him up and then he would be in that state where he then wrote down the unified field theory uh the uft as, as it's called which is what just like uh this theory, by the way, because like I said, it comes out backwards out there. But this theory on the cover of the book, this is what opened up time and space. This is what allowed us to then uh, either dilute time or kind of dance between the raindrops or what have you. And it was just as important to 
the evolution of, of time travel and shifting things as e equals mc squared actually opened up the atom and then of course you know led to atomic weapons and all that so here's here is the we try to tell the brief story of this um in the in the early 90s uh i went out to uh the um Tickaboo Valley out there, which is a big, it's a beautiful area of the of the High Nevada Desert. And uh, there'd been some friends of mine that had been going out there. Now, this all came from the Bob Lazar interview in 1990, because Lazar told us as we we're interviewing him, he said, look, you don't have to believe anything I say. He says, if you go out to the Tickaboo Valley along Highway 375, which because of me and us, they've actually renamed the Extraterrestrial Highway. Um, if you go out there on Wednesday night, it's about dusk. That's when they test the ships. Now, my dad was an experimental test pilot. He was a he was a, a naval aviator. He was a Top Gun guy in Korea, and um, you know then was an experimental test pilot. So he said, "Well, it's easy because they lay out the mission plan on Monday. You then do what they call nuts and bolts on Tuesday, where you work with the engineers to make sure everything's tied down and you know bolted up, and that everything's you know hunky dory. On Wednesdays, you test because uh, Wednesday is the best time." for people you're at your you know <laughs> you're not hung over from the weekend and you're kind of into the work wave so wednesday has always been the, the best mental physical time for people to work uh thursday you then have a debrief and then friday you either have a, a funeral for whoever died testing stuff or um, um or a barbecue you know to celebrate before you go off the weekend so lazar told us he said you just go out on wednesday night around dusk or so he says happens at dusk and then early in the morning on thursday and they test these things and you'll see them. So, and this is how Lazar got in a lot of trouble because it was John Lear that knew this. And Lear is the one that took Lazar out there. Lear is the one that told Lazar to see if he could get a job at 5-1. And so Lazar, when he was at Los Alamos, uh, Lazar had tested a jet car out there in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And uh, he was in the local newspaper and he just happened to sit down to lunch next to Dr. Edward Teller, who's the father of the of the hydrogen bomb. And they started discussing various things. And Teller gave him a card and said, if you want to get back into physics, here's my card. So um, Lear thought that was pretty interesting. And he, and he said, well, if you want to get back into physics, why don't you call these people and see what you can do? So he calls Dr. Teller and he says, I want to get a job. I want to get back into physics. I want to get back into science. Uh, can you help? And Teller said, I'll see what that can do. And hung up the phone. A few hours later, he gets a call from uh, a representative of EE&G, and, uh, which was a big defense contractor out there, who run a bunch of stuff at, at uh, 5-1. So um, he said, I'm looking, to, looking for a job. Here's my, you know, here's my resume in physics and whatever else. And he gets a call a few days later. He goes, in, he goes on this interview. He said it was kind of weird because there were five guys sitting at a table uh, and it was a big hanger and there was a chair and they grilled them on things like, do you believe in gravity? Do you believe gravity can be defeated? You know, what are your, what are your opinions on quantum physics, et cetera, et cetera. And he gets a job and he starts working. I think it was December of 87, I think was when they'd actually, that was when they had the, the conflict because, um, the people at five, one wanted to move the borders and they were taking away farmland from a, a, a farmer out there, uh, Steve Medlin. And there was another guy that owned a, a silver mine, um, the Groom Lake silver mine. And they were like pushing him out of his property. And of course they complained to the government and Harry Reid actually had um, uh, hearings on it. Harry Reid had actually, interestingly enough, been the pro, been the, uh, the pro force of actually getting everything uh, 
uh, of, of getting things from out of Area 51. And um, he went there and they gave him a little tour. They gave him some pine scented Kool-Aid to drink, some kind of mind control stuff. And when he came out, he's like, yeah, sure, they can do what they want. So they expanded their borders by 89,000 acres. And this is where he asked the commandant of Nellis, so why do you need the 89,000 acres? What exactly are you doing there? And the commandant of Nellis said, I don't know. I don't have the clearance to go there. I've never been there. Nobody can go. And, um, and that's the other weird thing, too, is that 5-1 is not part of the military. It's not part of the government. You go on that place and you're on the moon. It was, you know, they can do anything they want to you. They can take you out and shoot you if they want, make you a target of opportunity, as they call it. So it's, um, anyway, it's an interesting, interesting thing. They took Harry Reid out there. And of course, everybody that goes out there suddenly comes out, you know, oh, yeah, it's so important and all this. Um, you know, Clinton, I think, sent some spies in there, which he's actually mentioned um, a couple of times in public interviews, which is also in the book. So anyway, so I was getting into Area 51. There was a guy and, and I, I went out there with a friend of mine who was a reporter for the for the L.A. Times. And she was in the car in front of us. And I was with my friend Jeff. And um, it was a dark and stormy night. And the bottom line was we got swooped by a saucer that came right across the road, kind of stood up on its edge. Uh, fluttered, shot off into the desert. We crashed the car, uh, completely flipped out. We got out of the car. We chased after this thing. Then it came back at us, and uh, uh, we got badly irradiated by it. As a matter of fact, I think probably the throat cancer that's manifesting now has a lot to do with that experience because the doctor literally said, what did you do? Put your head in a microwave? You're like, you got radiation poisoning. And, uh, and of course, this this area of the throat is what you know deals with stuff like that. So... Um, uh, Anyway, so after the sighting, I mean, I was hooked and I started going out there every couple of weeks. And then I found a hilltop that actually looked down on the base. I mean, it looked right down on their throat. So a friend of mine got a video camera, came back. It was um, uh, it was May 31st, I think, of 92, 91, 91. And um, uh, we filmed the base for the first time. And the footage has gone worldwide. Everybody that's ever seen the base at night that then has this this mysterious light that's actually coming in, which, by the way, it turned out to be a plane. There were people, I see on the table, oh, it's just a plane. And even though people are like, oh, you know, you pretended it was UFO, I said, I did no such thing. I told everybody that it was a plane. And, but we did get some saucers on tape. So after that, I knew what the base looked like. So I was working for Geraldo Rivera at that time. And, um, and actually, it was Bob Keviat that was at Geraldo that then came out got me the job at, uh, at Unsolved Mysteries. And then even though I was on top of it and I was the first one to really get it, the whole alien autopsy stuff came out and I got completely snaked by Keviat, who doesn't, <laughs> doesn't rank very high up there on the moral chart because he, he sold money selling his real and then he made money pretending it was fake. So that was a, another weird thing. And then when we came across uh, what I think is absolutely real footage, which is the alien interview, of two minutes and 55 seconds of an actual being being interrogated at level five. Um, and by the way, there's a big, we're on a big documentary on that now because it's been 25 years and nobody's faked it. Nobody's come forward. Nobody said, I mean, the video would have cost probably $250,000 to make and nobody's come out and said, I did it. Nobody's came out and says it was fake. Uh, so we have revolutionary footage of an actual um, extraterrestrial being interrogated and having some kind of attack and possibly dying sometime later. So, um, Anyway, long story short, I knew what the base looked like. So we had a guy who came out of 5-1 uh, of, uh, and claimed to be an assassin, called himself Ghost Walker. 
he gave us different names, you know, Connor Hennessy, Derek Hennessy, uh, various aliases. And but he claimed he'd also had 65 confirmed kills and and that uh, you know, he was the he was the government's one bullet retirement program. So I asked him, tell me what the base looks like. He drew a whole thing and we filmed him, videotaped him. Excuse me. Filmed him, videotaped him, you know, talking about the base. So I knew he was legit. So his thing was that he claimed he had a stack of documents. And this is leading up to how I got the manuscript for Sans Time. Uh, claiming he had a stack of documents, about 500 pages or so, 450 or so. And he said it was the Holy Grail. It showed everything. It showed the development, the aliens, the truth from the inside. And of course, this is the one thing that nobody has. I mean, everybody that's goofing around with this stuff that's a, you know, a researcher, they all deal in hearsay evidence. They have to go to somebody who claims he has a story. So, so as a journalist, you're just reporting somebody else's story. And um, anyway, so he comes out of this. We have Geraldo Rivera on board and he wants, you know, money. He wants like $250,000 to get out with this thing. And he also says, well, Sean, I'll give this to you, but it's going to change your life. You have to understand they're going to come at you. They're going to possibly put you in prison. They're going to, you know, or kill you. You may have to move to Costa Rica or something. So I said, I'm game. I'm, I'll do it. So we got Geraldo on board. Uh, we told him in no uncertain terms that we weren't going to give him any money up front, that his money was on the other side of the door when we got the documents. So long story short, we went through this whole dog and pony show where he's, he's sleeping in my front room. I've got the, you know, I've got a friend who calls me that says, look, this guy's super dangerous. And we think he's a spy. And, you know, I, and I slept with a loaded 38 under my pillow for a, a good week or so. And he was a super soldier. I saw him do physical things. I mean, this guy could walk on his hands for miles along the wall um, on the strand on the beach. I, I watched him run um, 100 yard dash in like 9.3 seconds in the sand. Uh, I watched him jump to the top of, a, of one of the lifeguard stands out there. I mean, just amazing physical stuff. He was about 6'4". He had gold eyes. He had this big scar across his face. He looked like Doc Savage. He looked exactly like the comic character Doc Savage. So we wind up going back out to Las Vegas going on this whole thing and give me a key to a locker and the lockers have been stolen, blah, 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 blah. So we have a security team that's supposed to meet us out in front of the Flamingo Hotel. And um, he goes one way, I go another. And then we're supposed to meet at three o'clock. Got these armed guys and uh, he disappeared. Never saw him again. Now, the only thing I heard of him later was that he was infiltrating now these uh, sovereign citizen groups like the Elohim something and and uh, he was trying to get them to blow up a government building so that they could actually then blame the Patriot movement uh, for whatever this was. Now, after hearing that, about two months later, Oklahoma City blows up and uh, Clinton is, is given two. He's given two scenarios. One scenario would be this is the Iraqis and the Iraqis blow up the building. It was Iraqi agents, which would give Clinton the excuse to start the Iraq war and go after Baghdad, which he summarily rejected because he was really anti-military and of course the other one which was much more favorable to bill clinton was you can blame rush limbaugh and you can blame anybody on the right you can blame anybody in the alternative media and it was basically the oklahoma city city building getting blown up because his his poll numbers were terrible he was not going to get reelected. he he by the way he was never elected with a majority the first time i think he was elected with only 42 percent of the vote the second time it was like 46 percent. so he was not well liked even though I thought he was actually kind of a decent president because he did balance the budget and all that, which is why it was why he was impeached because he balanced the budget and everything to do with Lewinsky. So people in charge like Ted Humphrey were noticing this kid 
that's taking the risk to be able to get the truth out there. And when Ted Humphrey, well, so what happened was is that the last time I spoke to Ted, um, well, before you go there, before you go there, I just, I just wanted to kind of like point out that, um, the, that, um, that super soldier you talked about, Derek Hennessy or Connor O'Ryan, those were the two aliases I know. There's actually interview, uh, Wendell Stevens did four hours of interview with him and uh, one of his, uh, supporters, uh, Rick O'Keefe actually put out that video and there was kind of like we, we I actually helped them a little bit in, in getting some promotion out for that video but that was a lot a lot after when you talked with with Connor um Orion or, or, or Derek Hennessy but that video is available uh, and there uh, there's a link that um, you can find uh, on my website that goes that will allow people to kind of like watch that video but he, he talked one of the things he talked about was um, when he was uh, at the s4 facility he described seeing uh, as i recall i think it was uh, nine craft he said he saw nine craft and he said four of the craft were uh, german uh, hanubu and real craft and another and another five craft were extraterrestrial craft so did so can you kind of like elaborate about the different craft that were stored at S4? And what's the difference with S2? There's the S4 where all these nine craft were stored. Then there's the S2 facility. So can you explain the craft at S4 and, and what was stored at S2 or what was happening at S2? Okay. Um, over at S2 is where we've got, uh, S2 is where the Vipers are. And the Vipers are very much kind of hybrid technology. This is, well, I'll, tell, I'll show you one. This is, this is, that's the inside of S2. And that's one of the Viper craft. The Viper was nicknamed Hazel. And these are things that have basically surface to space capabilities. Um, they're warships. They're basically designed to um, keep Earth safe. And at the same time, they, they interact with a, uh, um, a phalanx or a, a a group of I guess you would call a what do they call them? like pillboxes. They're just you know they're they're they sense we teleport them into a spot and then they just kind of they're like sentries. So anything that we don't like or anything that's not registered or you know anything we don't know about, they blow out of the sky uh, with this uh, this blue laser that they uh, that they develop. Um, the S four facility was over at. Uh, was over at Papoose Lake. So, but then there was S2 and then, so S2 was where the Vipers were. And see, it's, it's very weird because you look at, you look at, um, you look at 5-1, whatever's going on at 5-1 is not part of the military, is all independent. And um, it's why they tested on Wednesday nights. And also, I mean, the thing that didn't make sense to me is I'm out there with, with Gary Schultz and Noria Hightower and Anthony Hilder and uh, um, uh, 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 Ed Griffin came out there. He, he'd been a family friend for forever. He wrote Fearful Master and the Creature of Jekyll Island and all that. So Ed was out there. And then I started taking a lot of celebrity people out. Um, uh, I took all the Conan O'Brien's writers out. I took Dean Devlin, um, who came up with the idea for Independence Day when we were actually on top of the mountain where he just said, well, so if we got attacked by aliens, this this place would be our last line of defense. And I said, yeah, and that's from that came the whole idea for Independence Day. Uh, by the way, it was funny because uh, Dean had the complete cooperation of the military and he was going to shoot the whole thing uh in el toro at miramar uh they were going to give him tanks and guns and planes and the whole thing and then he got a letter 
from the military that said, if you mention Area 51 in your movie, uh, we're going to pull our, all our support. And he actually called me and said, can you believe this? And I'm like, dude, he had a Comic-Con actually coming up in Los Angeles. I said, you got to show this to the crowd because this, this shows how deep it is. And he did. He actually put the whole thing up on the screen and said, this is what they said. And they pulled all their support, which is why they had to shoot the movie in Utah. Uh, because Utah and the Mormons were all about it. They said, yeah, you can use this all flats. We'll give you the airplanes. We'll, you know, we'll, you've got the whole cooperation of the Utah National Guard, which is why they shot it all up there. So, but I mean, I took a lot of celebrities up there. Uh, Betty Thomas was a big director of private parts and she was on Hill Street Blues and, and her girlfriend who was, uh, had written, you know, Wild Boys. And, um, I was coming, I said, is your friend okay? Cause she seems a little tweaky. And she said, well, she's going through kind of a bad divorce. Uh, and I said, well, who's her husband? He said, her husband is, is Robert Eglund, who's the guy who played Freddy Krueger. And I was like, yeah, no wonder she's messed in the head. So anyway, so you know, this is a lot of stuff that I was doing to kind of make it famous. And um, and my experience out there on February 26th of 91 uh, made the front page of the LA Times. And in the Vegas area, the people who were on top of this were, you know, of course, everybody knew who Lazar was and George Knapp because he was on Channel 8. And he had some uh, Emmy Award winning uh, documentaries called UFO, uh, UFO's Best Evidence, I think is what it was called. And um, so it's just different sections. I mean, you, you had the 5-1 itself, as I said, they began testing on the Wednesday nights and they asked, uh, they asked Nellis to turn off their radar because they got tired of explaining stuff that was over it. And Nellis said, no, we're not doing any such thing. So we're out there in the Tickaboo Valley on public land. Uh, kind of staring into the base and doing whatever. And the, the hilltop I found, I mean, I had to go through a lot of trouble to make sure it was on this side, the public side. We got warned by the sheriff a couple of times, Sheriff Doug Lamoureux. And, you know, again, it was a great adventure, but we would go there first and say, look, we're going to be out there. I mean, we have no intention of going on the base, no one catching. And they're like, well, you're threatening the facility. I said, I am not. It's a line. And, you know, I'm standing at the fence and I'm on one side of it or I'm not. And they came out a couple of times and said our eyes were dilated and we were all on acid and, you know, all that stuff. And I can take you in. And as a matter of fact, the first time I found the hilltop, uh, the Wacken Hut security guys went through, had, they broke into the car. My girlfriend was asleep in the tent on the hill. And they broke into the car, stole my wallet. And uh, I had to get back to Vegas because I had a Nevada driver's license at the time. And we got back to Vegas and there was a, the first weather phenomenon, uh, uh, phenomenon. There was a humongous, um, I don't know what you want to call it when it's on land, but this hurricane appeared out of nowhere and shut down Vegas with this sandstorm. And uh, so we were trapped in Vegas for a while because there was no power, there was no energy. And uh, uh, I got my driver's license again with some trouble. And then two months later, uh, I had a room in a house that was locked because I had a bunch of roommates and whatever else. So in a locked house, in a locked room <laughs> that nobody had access to. I came into my room and my wallet was sitting on my desk just to say, we know exactly, we know who you are. We know where you live. And this is how we get access to it. So 5-1 was not part of the military. They, they, they flew all the stuff low in the valley, right over our heads when they have a military reservation, like the size of Switzerland to fly the whole thing. Why did they fly it over our heads? It's because they were trying to, they did not want the military to know what they were up to. So, um, and the whole thing is just divided in different sections. You've got a little bit north of there. You've got a, a nuclear waste facility. I don't know if Yucca Mountain is that way, but it, but it was actually um, Area 13 is what it's called. And uh, they'd done some underground testing there. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, the the only reason that Bob Lazar got the job at 5.1 is because they were trying to crack open one of these antimatter engines and it exploded and uh, killed five scientists. So they just kind of pulled Lazar out of nowhere. You know, they just needed personnel. And I think they needed personnel that maybe were easy to intimidate or, you know, had some uh, sketchy past or something. And so, you know, that's kind of the reason he got the job. They just needed personnel. And none of these people were top-notch at anything. They were more people that they pulled off of, of other places to, uh, uh, just because they were probably easy to intimidate. So that's all I can tell you. I mean, it's the, the, the S, the, the Papoose Lake facility was kind of thrown together. It was a bunch of hangers against the, uh, uh, against the far wall where the, where the dry lake bread was. And then it went down uh, five stories or so. So the, the first story was the uh, was where they kept the ships and all that. And they actually would slide into hangars. And then the, it had a floor that went down to the second floor that um, uh, you know, was where they worked on stuff. And they could slide it into a bay where they had these uh, kind of like monkey bars that would come out around the ship. And then the third level was, the, uh, was for the scientists uh, get coffee and snacks and whatever. Fourth level was primarily security. And there were probably five security guards for every scientist they had on the facility. And then level five was the scary part. I, I'm not sure if you guys asked uh, asked Connor or Derek or whatever he called himself at the time, um, but he talked about that that level five was where they kept a, a, a menagerie of different alien species that were all in these this blue liquid with a silver bar across the the chest and the groin. And then at the end of that hallway was what they called the ambassadorial facility, which was where uh, they had captured alien beings and and. 89 i think it was uh there was a crash in the kalahari desert and they actually managed to get uh two uh two beings two aliens and one of them died fairly quickly afterwards um and the other one is what is what the alien interview is based on and uh, as i said they uh uh they can't it had to have filtered air and they had to have filtered food they ate this this algae uh, that they had to grow especially for them because they don't have any teeth they've got a kind of a hard gum that they just kind of, you know, suck the, uh, the nutrients out of this algae. So, but uh, again, this, this being um, affected everybody around it. It could obviously telepathically communicate. And the video that you see uh, for the alien, the alien interview is uh, they had what they called an intcom, which is an intuitive communicator. And we don't know if the guy was telling the truth or not, but he supposedly was able to come up with some kind of uh, psychic link with the being. And uh, eventually died because it was, uh, you know, spores. It was just parasites uh, in the air. And their their lungs uh, is a single organ. It's like a single heart lung organ. And it was just microbes and stuff that got into it. So eventually the, the, uh, the being just kind of choked to death. So um, that's the difference. Yeah. It's, it's mostly gone now. They moved everything. They moved the ships and the saucers. They moved almost everything in the facility uh, to a new facility, actually, because my early 93 uh there was just nothing there and um you know and montel williams kept promising he, he stood me up like seven times and he keeps saying i'm gonna go i'm gonna go i'm like yeah right sure and by the time he said okay i can go i'm like no screw you i'm i'm done it's they've moved everything there's nothing going on there that's interesting at all and uh, although the one thing we did see in 2000 uh my wife and i went out there with a couple of canadian girls and um, we did see a complete red flag war game and the weird part about the war game was is that you had three uh, noiseless black helicopters 
that were forming a, a phalanx around a saucer, around a ship. And the, it was here. And then the helicopters would be here. And the ship in the middle would go, you know, would just shoot around and do different things and then rejoin that and then go back over the hill. So that was the only, and the rest of it was just, you know, jets flying all around and all that stuff. So they had done war games out there, but there's a brand new facility uh, that's built underground underneath a huge mountain called uh, King's Peak in the Uinta National Forest in Utah. So the majority of everything has been moved to Utah or a series of new underground bases. So that's... So um, the S2 facility where they keep these Vipers, I mean, that's, or these uh, TR... I mean, you, you talked about the TR3B and the TR3, four, five, six. Yeah, they're, they're up to, they're, they're up to it's like the series. TR, so, TR, by the way, stands for terrestrial reconnaissance. Yeah. So, so the TR3 and, and its successor craft that had that triangular Viper formation, right. I mean, they were originally housed at, at the S2 facility, but you're right. saying that the S2 facility has been uh, moved to Utah now, to the salt flax up there? I don't know. I just know, I, you know, there's no saucer test anymore. I just know that the... Uh, the saucer stuff got moved there. They probably still have uh, the support structure for the, the whole TR program. Because remember, that's what Area 50 runs is run by the Office of Naval Intelligence. So the whole thing is basically a spy base, which is why you had the U-2 spy plane that was coming and going out of that. But at the same time we had the U-2 spy plane, we had the SR Blackbird program. So SR standing for surveillance and reconnaissance. So, And they were doing Mach, at least Mach 3 plus uh, by... 64 i think and just give you an idea of the lag time between i guess what you would call because there's r d technology which is stuff businesses are working on which is maybe three years ahead of what comes comes to the market then you have then you have the uh military technology which is then probably and i would say 10 to 15 years ahead of anything we have like the blackbird is an example uh they didn't even admit the blackbird existed until 74 and then the Blackbird program was retired with no replacement, which is weird, uh, in 78. So we didn't know anything that was replacing the SR. So obviously what's replacing it now is um, uh, is the TR program, terrestrial reconnaissance, which are basically just these big triangles. And the triangles just, they float up in space. And they just look down and they just scan everything on the earth. They're, they're literally like the watchers of the Bible. And um, I remember we were there. One night, I was there with my buddy, Charles Smirnoff, and we were looking at this kind of strange triangle of stars. And um, right before dawn, this suddenly this triangle just started moving across the sky, and it was blacking out all the stars behind it. And we were, <laughs> we were just flipping out because we were like, holy crap. That thing had been there all night, and it just had moved in geosynchronous orbit, blacking out the stars, and then it just moved right over us and you know, moved out into space. It was weird because it was big. And... Um, now they've got some of the best footage I've seen of the TR, probably the TR-8 or so, but there's a there's a quantum drive in the center. And so there's a big white hole of energy at the center of the craft. Uh, it uh, came from two kids who took it in France, outside of Paris. And this thing, you see it you know, maneuvering around. And then the bubble in the center actually goes, becomes a, a big bubble in the middle of the ship. And then it goes, and it forms that, that shield that I was telling you that you need when you're teleporting things back and forth or doing a time jump or whatever. And this, this thing just forms this big bubble around the craft and then just disappears. So that's, uh, that's part of it. So with the Sands of Time books, how I got them was Ted Humphrey. He started coming to my lectures and he would just stand in the back and he would you know, come up and 
I was in Seattle and she said, you know, you want to go out to, out to I'll take out to dinner. He went to Denny's. It wasn't any place fancy. And he started talking about, well, you know, I'm, I'm involved in some of these programs and maybe I can give you some advice to uh, guide you in the right way. And see, I was the perfect conduit because, you know, I was there originally with, uh, with Art Bell and Art Bell had a show that was just basically kind of right of center. And he was just talking politics and it was really boring. He had 10,000 people maybe at the middle, in the middle of the night. And he was the only person who would answer the phone. And there was a pay phone out in front of the, uh, the little alien, which was kind of a burger place, um, you know, run by Joe and Pat Travis. And it's the only place that would take our call. So we, you know, we'd drive over the hill and I get on the phone and, and he put me on the radio. And I'm like, you know, Art, you gotta, I know you're prompt. You gotta go, you gotta go outside, man. You gotta go, you gotta go take a look at uh, what's happening. He, he went outside his, his double wide uh, trailer headquarters and uh, saw this thing flying over his head and it was like he just said well, what do you do and i told him i just got done doing this big documentary called ufo contactees and i met everybody i mean I, I can say without any remorse whatsoever that i was probably probably wendell stevens and myself were the two uh top ufo researchers and investigators i mean in the world uh, because i've actually gone and met everybody i mean you know everybody else just sits back and does nothing and sits in their chair and you know, snipes off the internet. And I'd been there. I talked to people. I, you know, I went to their houses. I, you know, hung out with them. I became friends with them. We went to, you know, we went to uh, uh, England when the, um, when the first crop circles were appearing. Um, we, we, we went to Billy Myers farm. We went up and down Italy. We went through France. We went to, through Canada. We went through the East coast. I mean, just anybody had a dog barked at a UFO. We went out and talked to them and the, uh, uh, the challenge here with all this was that the the um, uh, we gathered about 600 hours of footage for this video series. We then started a magazine called UFO Library Magazine, which I was one of the editors on. This was all Joe Randazzo. Uh, we tried to get it. I mean, still to this day, I've been pitching like a UFO contact show because UFO shows are boring because it's, oh, yeah, there's a light. Okay, fine. Zips around, does weird things. And it's on the news. But again, there's no who, what, when, why, where, and how. There's maybe a what. There's no why, there's maybe a when, but that's it. So that's why you just get it. Everybody laughs on it. It's like it's like a cute pet story on the news and they always run it during sweeps. So, um, uh, and Art said, I want to know everybody that you know, everybody that you know, everything you know. And I had a whole Rolodex. And so I started booking guests for him and kind of producing the show. And um, uh, it blew up. I mean, it just blew up. I mean, we had 27 million people on the program and the minute, Art found out that I did predictions and that I was kind of an earth sensitive. And I, you know, he's like, I want that, you know, come on the show, make all your predictions. And then when all my predictions started coming true, uh, then he started getting freaked out because he said, I'm not so sure I want you making predictions anymore because I'm not so sure because what you say is so, <laughs> it just comes true. It's weird. And I said, well, what about Ed Dames, man? You let him on the show every week. And, you know, and he goes, well, everybody knows that Ed Dames is full of shit. But every time you say something, it happens. And it scares me because I'm not so sure with this audience that we built that we're not creating these events to start happening. And so whatever. So the uh, so that's what it, that's what it became. And I, I was actually chosen to be his heir apparent uh, when he quit the show. And, you know, I said, well, they actually offered me the program. And they said, you've got a radio background. You've got a, you know, you've got degrees from USC and performing arts and all that. And the uh, <laughs> biggest mistake of my life, I said, well, if it's okay with art, it's okay with me because I'm his friend and I don't want to be seen stepping over somebody's corpse. And uh, 
they went, what, what, what? No, Art Bell doesn't run this network. You know, I run this network. Some guy didn't follow or something. Okay, uh, well, um, let's kind of like just back up to uh, Ted Humphrey. Uh, he's a real life person yes, sir, that was, was in, involved in the running of these programs. And uh, he is someone you met that uh, really got you to be the conduit for his information to come out. And that's that's the, the basis for the Sands of Time series. So, I mean, in the Sands of Time series, I mean, you've written four books now. Now, Ted, Ted Humphrey, I mean, he, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a fiction based on fact series. But uh, Ted Humphrey, I mean, he really, really is one of these kind of like dynamic hero characters. Right. I mean, how close is that to reality? Or is he just, you know, someone that's involved in the black programs, knows a lot about it and shared it with you and you just kind of ran with it? And okay, So what happened was, is that, like I said, the last time I heard from him, um, I had written an article uh, in my newsletter a couple of months in advance, and I made a bet with him because I told him, I said, uh, Obama's not going to be able to take the oath of office and for, to be president. He said, what are you talking about? I said, he's not a citizen and he can't take the, the Article 6 oath of the president. And you watch if they don't find some way to screw up the oath. He says, so you're telling me he's going to get up there with the Supreme Court Justice of the United States and that they're going to goof up the oath and do something so he doesn't take it the exact way it's in the Constitution. I said, yep. He said, I'll bet you a hundred bucks that that doesn't happen. I said, you're on, man. You want, you know, want more action? You want to make a thousand? He's like, no, no, a hundred bucks is fine. So I'm sitting here watching the inauguration and right before my eyes, John Roberts screws up the oath of office and Obama's sitting there going, I promised a defense. What? Huh? And um, unless you say the oath exactly as written in the constitution, it's no good. So I hear somebody in the background go, <laughs> laugh and my phone rings. I pick up the phone and it's it's Ted, and which is not his real name, by the way. But it's a uh, uh, I'm like, what's up? And he goes, I owe you a hundred bucks. I'm like, did you see what I just saw? I'm like, yeah, I told you it's going to screw the oath up. And they supposedly gave Obama the oath the next day, but it wasn't recorded and there wasn't a Bible. And it's interesting that they had to move a painting of a master mason, this guy, Carl Latrobe, uh, in between um, Obama and Roberts and all that. So Roberts was in on it. Roberts has been a traitor since jump. And um, so that's the last I hear from Ted. So sometime in the spring of 2009, uh, I get a call from these really scary lawyers in, in Century City. I mean, it's like the top multi-zillion dollar law firm. And um, I'm like, what do you want? They said, we need you to come in. There's a probate matter, they said. And I was like, what does that mean? And he said, well, your friend so-and-so has a, we're, we're going to give you something. You'll want it. And I was like, okay. So I went to the <laughs> Century City, we call it the butthole building because they actually tore down the ABC entertainment complex and they built this building that has a square hole through the building. So I go up there and uh, they make me sign like horrible pain of death, non-disclosure agreements saying, we're going to give you these, these, these journals. They're basically like leather journals or strapped together with a belt. And it was in his handwriting. And um, uh, he said, these are from Ted Humphrey uh, with the agreement that you don't, ever use his name and you alter the names of his families because he still has living family he was married to a, a very important uh, scientist in russia uh, who lives in st petersburg i think or in katrinburg and uh, you know and he has kids and, and we don't want this directly affecting them they said so do what you want with it and uh but just don't use the names of these people 
So I started getting into it and I thought, oh, wow, this is crazy. And then I just started typing out the manuscript of the diary. And the way I chose to do it was to do it as a, that if I, you know, just rig it up as a, I wanted to allow people to say, okay, you can take this, take this or leave it. You can, you can understand these are directly from the journals and that this is a, a true story that has to be sort of glossed over as science fiction, if you will, uh, to save my own life. And Ted had warned me, he said, I'm going to give you the story of this. He says, but they're going to come after you. They're going to, uh, you know, they'll use every dirty trick and rot like that they know of. And um, yeah, my life started getting very weird. And I finally, I, I decided that uh, the first the first two books I was going to put into uh, uh, the first person as, as it was written, kind of mold all the stuff together uh, to craft a story around, you know, what was happening. Uh, the third book I put in, I put in a third person because there was a lot of other research that had to do with the, uh, you know, the research of uh, uh, Hans, Hans Kohler and the, the Kohler device, which is what created the shield around the person uh, when they went through the, the time jump and, uh, you know, and all that. And now uh, the next books, now you've got uh, the Time Runner books because uh, Ted actually leaves the planet for 440 days in our time, but he's gone for almost 18 years because he's at the, he's at one of the outer rims uh, of, of the galaxy and time runs differently. So 18 years for him, when he jumps into the inner ring, uh, became about 440 days. And the whole point of this was to, again, um, there's something very big and very bad that's coming this way. And the, 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 the harder you scratch military individuals or people on the inside or people who really know what's going on, they understand that the Russians are no threat. They understand that the Chinese are really no threat, that they're, they're all controlled by the same black box mother corporation set up both in Russia. The real, the real fly in the ointment for them or the, the spanner and the gear is Vladimir Putin because Putin is public enemy number one to the new world order. He had some kind of come to Jesus moment where he's in his mind defending Christianity on earth. So, you know, you get to see how it all works out, why the timeline is different, how things were uh, were switched from uh, where it was. And since I'd been through one of these times. I just I want know. to kind of like um, just interject there that yeah. uh, Edgar Casey made that prediction where Russia would become the, the hope of the world after the, the demise of communism. Yeah. So he made that prediction, I think, in the 1930s. During yes, the 1930s, he said, we, he said we'd become great friends with Russia. Yeah, and and, and, that's, and and that that kind of shows that that Russia at this moment really is involved in, and I I, I agree with you that Russia is involved in taking down the deep state. Yes, yeah. No, when when uh, Putin said, if the you know if, if if the deep state had a throat, I would strangle it with my bare hands. When you have Nathaniel Rothschild coming out saying that Vladimir Putin is public enemy number one to the new world order, and the the most everybody talks about disclosure. And the most remarkable disclosure comment ever made was when Trump went to, it was at a summit with Putin. And Putin says to Trump to his face, he says, by the time you're done being president of the United States, you must inform people of the truth of 9-11 and that there are 27 alien races that we're dealing with on this planet, three of which are actively trying to destroy us. This is the president of Russia saying this. And by the way, there's a lot of people who think behind the scenes that if push really came to shove with the United States, that he has basically satellite photographs of the entire of, of the and that he can prove the entire uh, 9-11 hoax that the four aircraft that took off uh, were forced to land at Andrews Air Force Base and uh, that the 
that basically they were replaced midair uh, by remote control craft. And I actually asked Ted Humphrey what happened to the people on the aircraft. It's just interesting that the, the 737s that uh, were used, uh, the four crafts had exactly 222 passengers. And these planes have a, a capacity of like two, 242. And so one of two things happened either. I thought that maybe they just took all the passengers, loaded them on a plane, and then just, you know, crashed that plane in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, I asked Ted what happened to the people. And his exact words were, you know, the screaming only lasted a few minutes. And he said they pulled a couple of people out of the line. And uh, like uh, uh, the wife of, um, oh gosh, she was the CNN correspondent, but she, uh, uh, she was taken to Switzerland and her face was being altered. And there was a Chicago journalist named uh, 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 Skolnick, Charles Skolnick, and he found out that she was still alive. And you know, he he met an untimely demise a couple of weeks later. But uh, according to him, he says a few people were pulled out of the line and they just shot everybody else. Okay. Uh, by the way, it's not a weird thing, and people can check this if they want. But the actual uh, wing numbers, the the serial numbers of those four airplanes, show that they were never decommissioned. And they were eventually uh, sold to an airplane company in Greece. So they didn't even take them out of, out of commission, the planes that were, that were used. So you're still in touch with uh, this Ted Humphrey. No, he's he... dead. He's, he's supposedly, I was told that, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I rewind that. I asked the attorneys. I said, so is he dead? And they said, well, he's moved on. And I said, what does that mean? And they were just like, that's all we're allowed to say, that he's moved on. I said, moved on as how? As in dead? Was there a funeral? As whatever? That's all we can tell you. Here you go. Take your books and have a good time. So I put them together. And the day I, I started, I, I put the books out uh, was the day that the that suddenly uh, the, the Justice Department, the DOJ, uh, the Security Exchange Commission, the IRS, uh, all these people started coming after me for, you know, for doing nothing. And so I, I spent, uh, you know, four years in prison where they gave me cancer, where they, uh, you know, because I have highly advanced throat cancer, thanks to a lot of alternative therapies. And they, they said I was supposed to be dead last Christmas. And, uh, and I'm dealing with it now. As a matter of fact, this Thursday, this is probably the last interview I'm going to do for a long time. Um, and I'm so appreciative people would actually, uh, you go to my website, which is strangeuniverseradio.com. Uh, I have a show actually every night on Revolution Radio at 10 o'clock uh, Pacific. Uh, so I'm on for two hours from, you know, from uh, 10 to midnight, but strangeuniverseradio.com. You can look it up. You can buy it on Amazon. We'd appreciate it if you come to our website, buy it from us because Amazon takes a big cut. But we've got, uh, we've got Sands of Time, Volume 1, uh, Sands of Time, Volume 2. And you need these two books together because these two books are part one and part two. And then I've got, uh, uh, let's see, I've got this one, which is, of course, the Isomer Protocol. And this is the battle that earth went through in about 2004 or five uh, to get out from under these alien species who were supposedly trying to protect us. Uh, basically the Andromeda council, as they call themselves. And we punched them in the nose and said, no, we're not going to be, uh, you're going to give us our freedom. But they were going to come in and destroy area 51 and all our top secret uh, bases with this technology. And now the, the, the new one, which is um, um, time runner act one. And these, uh, the books have been optioned by the way, for a TV series by Arch Creek Entertainment. So it's, it's going to become a TV series, which will, uh, now that Area 51, thanks to me and other people out there who came along with this whole thing on a crusade, we've exposed this, all the secret technology and all the stuff. It's really an interesting point of my climbing up that hill 
and finding that point to look down on the base from that moment on. Uh, I didn't tell anybody about the hilltop. This is why our interview with Connor, that interview that you saw, uh, that I had a lot to do with because I was kind of behind the scenes going, well, ask him this, and ask him that. And, you know, it was our test to him to see if he was lying and see if he was uh, actually the real thing. And again, I think, I now think after dealing with, uh, you know, uh, you heard the story, obviously, about how Jim Cox and and, uh, and Wendell were being chased around and they their car was shot at and they were getting all these messages from Delta Force and all that stuff. Uh, and then he winds up at my house. Jim Delatoso calls me and says, look, this guy's dangerous. And I'm like, he's sleeping on my couch, man, with his girlfriend. And uh, he's like, you better be careful because you're going to wake up dead with this guy in your house. I didn't wake up dead, obviously, and because uh, he probably saw that Geraldo was going to give him some money. And he backed the whole operation of us going to back to Las Vegas and trying to get this book. And I think Ted Humphrey was watching that whole thing, and it may have been engineered by him because he was looking for somebody that he could trust to actually get these notes. He, he very much saw himself that if we can inform the people that we can, we can change the consciousness in such a way that, you know, we may be able to risk this invasion coming. And let me tell you one more thing that's interesting. It's a two-pronged attack. And um, if you look at the, at the symbol for NASA, and then you look at the symbol for the Space Force that Trump puts together, if you look at the symbol for NASA, there's three clusters of stars on the NASA symbol. At the very top is Orion. On the right-hand side is the constellation of the Pleiades. And on the left-hand side of the NASA symbol is the constellation of Alpha Draconis. The battle is between the Pleiadians and the Alpha Draconians with this planet in the center, in the middle of these two empires. If you look at the Space Force logo, and this is weird that they did this, but they took out Orion because Orion's an Alpha Draconian conquered state. And on the Space Force logo, again, on the left-hand side, you have Alpha Draconis, which is the great red dragon that's spoken of in the, in the Bible. You know, all the bad parts of the Bible involve this red dragon. And it's the Pleiades, again. So look at the Space Force logo. Um, I can figure out how to do it. Well, okay, so. Uh, well, well, yeah, I think we're kind of like pretty much out of time. Okay, I, I just right. wanted to kind of like uh, recommend Sands of Time <laughs> because it really is... Um, a great way of disclosing what's been going on for uh, many decades, and I, I think it's very entertaining. It's it's a great way of uh, getting people up to speed very quickly. And and I think if you if you got uh, family or friends who are kind of like distrustful or skeptical about this whole uh, genre, then giving them a gift of sands of time is a great way to kind of like introduce them open the door and then they'll they'll be kind of like ready to kind of do the deep dive in, into the into the kind of factual material that's out there so uh, i just yeah, want to that's, thank that's you. a great honor coming from you by the way and it's it's a it's a fantastic read don't you think yeah i think i thought it was marvelous i mean i read it uh, you know from from cover to cover very quickly it was just uh you know, couldn't put oh, it down. Michael Salas, very interesting. It's so thank you so much. God bless you. Yeah, so Thanks. so I definitely recommend it to my uh, audience. Uh, Sands of time and and get the series by Sean David Morton. And uh, yeah, I think you've been put through the ringer. And the Sands of time is is probably uh, a major factor. And that's one thing I've learned that uh, people who typically are put through the ringer like you've been, is because they are over the target. And I think you've been over the target with uh, with this book book series and i definitely look forward to uh, watching or reading uh, uh, books five and six when they do come out 
Oh, they're no, they're on their way. They're at the. Uh, uh, well, I'm actually, I'm clacking away on um, on Act Two and Three of uh, of Time Runner. I'm trying to get them finished. As a matter of fact, I've got the the raw manuscript all done, and I'm just clacking away, you know, doing it because I've start like radiation therapy in a couple of days, uh, which is like 30 days of complete awful hell. But you know, lose a lot of weight, I guess. It's, oh, it's a uh, Michael. I can't tell you what an honor it is to be on with you. You're you're such a legend in this field and exopolitics has been something it's so oh, uh, it's, it's just important it's been important to a lot of people and um as i said i was just i was overwhelmed when i got your request to do this interview and uh, if you want to do something on um on underground bases uh the other thing i was at the forefront of was was just to wrap this up here uh was in uh, december of 1989 uh we did an ultrasound on the uh on the, uh, the dulce archuleta mesa uh, proving that the base was there. And I took all this research to move on and they didn't care. They were just like, you know, no, they don't, we, they, there are only five people that are apparently uh, qualified to speak to move on. And uh, I tried to present it at their national convention and all that stuff. They just didn't care about that. And of course, you, uh, in Stands of Time, we talk about the Battle of Dulce, the two separate conflicts that took place at Dulce, uh, what finally happened when Reagan finally decided to drop a hammer on these guys. And, and uh, you know, get rid of their presence on Earth and, and all that. Why, why people are being abducted and why the cattle mutilations were happening out there? Well, so I, I wish you, I wish you the, the very best um, for 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 the treatment that's coming, and, and maybe we can have you back in the future and, and talk about what happened at the Dulce Atulucha uh, Mesa and uh, books five and six when they're out. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Just God bless you. Thank you. You're just you're such a you're, you're a great man. And I thank admire you, you and I appreciate you, and, and I can't thank you enough for having me here. You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.